Welcome to the Safeguarding Podcast. In each episode, we discuss a different topical safeguarding issue with a range of different guest speakers. Please be aware some of this content is sensitive and listener discretion is advised. Hello everyone and welcome to the Safeguarding Podcast. My name's Georgia, I'm the content manager here at the Safeguarding Company and I'm really excited today to be joined by Luke Ramston. Welcome Luke. Morning, good to see you. Yeah, really good to see you as well. Um, I was hoping you could just tell me a little bit about your background and what you are currently doing. Well, I'm deputy head at St. Benedict's School in Ealing, uh, where I've been based for six years now, but been teaching for much longer than that. I started off at Tunbridge School down in Kent and then as a housemaster at Upper Templeforth and now here in Ealing. Um, so done a variety of roles. Uh, and I think the key thing for me is that moving to St. Benedict's was the first time that safeguarding was specifically Know, a key part of my role and that's been I think the big interest for me over the last six years in how that links to all the other different roles that happen in schools and so I think that's been one of the big interesting things for me in my role um, here at St Benedict's. Wonderful so today we're talking about the new keeping children safe in education guidance so they're using the phrase a lot within the guidance creating the right safeguarding culture now for a lot of people we don't really know what that means. I was hoping you might be able to elaborate on that a little bit. Great, yes. So um, like lots of safeguarding leads around the country, I've been looking at uh, KCSIE and uh, rewriting, uh, editing our safeguarding policy. Um, and the key thing for today is not going to be a boring trawl through what each paragraph says. There are all sorts of um, articles and podcasts out there that are looking at that sort of detail. Um, so this is kind of much more a broad brush approach to how we create you know, that, that crucial word of a culture. And I think the key thing for me is that we still, despite what we've been talking about for years now in safeguarding, revert to a sort of tick box training focused element in safeguarding, where yeah. the fact that every staff member has done a quiz demonstrate that, that demonstrates that there's a good culture. And I think there are there are two ways um, of demonstrating what what to me is a good culture. First of all, it's the very commonly used teaching idea of the idea of becoming unconsciously competent. And I think that's a really strong idea when thinking about safeguarding, um, which you know, I think many teachers out there will have used that idea of going from unconscious incompetence, where you, know, you don't really know that what you don't know, through to conscious incompetence. Oh, I realise I need training in this to conscious competence. Right. Well, if I think hard about this, I think I'll do the right thing through to that that's that final stage of unconsciously competent, just without thinking about it, able to do the right thing in safeguarding. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, when you look over our teaching bodies in schools up and down the country, we have teachers in all sorts of diff different stages of that, um, all four of those different stages. And so the crucial thing about culture is trying as far as possible to get all teachers into that mindset so that without thinking about it, they'll do the right thing. The other key thing, I think, with a culture is not just focusing on what people are going to do with, when presented with a problem, but what do they do when they're not being called upon about mm -hmm. being a bit more proactive. A slightly odd phrase, but one I think was quite useful in the new Keeping Children Safe in Education is the one of professional curiosity. I'm not quite okay. sure who came across it, came up with that idea, but it's an interesting and quite good one about teachers 
being able to, I think the quote from it is, knowing what to look for as a vital stage for early identification. And I think that is something I'm always talking to my staff about, the idea of looking out for particular problems. And a bit like the way in which when we're teaching students about standing up to bullying and being active in that with a teacher, not just thinking, OK, somebody's come to me saying there's a problem, but actually as a class teacher or supervising a lunch break, actively looking for whether that, there might be a problem or if there seems to be a little problem, is that could that be a bigger problem than it seems to be? So those are the two key things in my mind when I'm thinking about a culture is are people doing the right thing without really having to think about it? And secondly, do they look for potential issues? And are they looking um, for how they can create sort of this this right culture? Uh, and going further, because clearly, you know, a lot of people listening to this will be thinking, well, well, how do you do that? How yeah. do you create those <laughs> things? And there, there are all sorts of different ways. But there are three things that sprung to mind with me when I thought about the idea of culture. First of all, and I think this might be a bit controversial. You know, there's all sorts of safeguarding training, which is very complex and detailed. But I would strongly say to all safeguarding leads and trainers, be as simple as possible. There is so much of a temptation to be looking at uh, different sort of levels and categories and what precise you do and this particular thing happens. And all of that you know, has a place. But the main thing for me is, particularly if you're teaching all the staff, this is not just your teaching staff, but every member of staff on site, what does everybody need to know? Yeah. And for me, it boils down to four things. Safeguarding is their responsibility, one. Mm-hmm. Be actively vigilant for problems, two. If you see anything odd, come to the right person and know who that person is. And number four, how to handle an active disclosure if somebody comes to you. If they know those four things, I always say I do those four things and then go on to other more detailed elements. I think if you just remember those four things, you'll be pretty good at safeguarding. And I think making people sort of less concerned about levels and thresholds and things. Is this necessarily a safeguarding issue? Is something I hear so often from members of staff. Whereas I want them to say, just pass it on to me and I'll make the decision. I'd far rather do that. Yeah. And I think that's where sometimes safeguarding can go badly wrong is somebody who's not that trained, who's not safeguarding, making a decision earlier down the track thinking, you know what, I saw that, but I'm going to make a decision. It's not really important. Yeah, I think, like like you said, I think that's a really valid point about simplifying it down, because I think, like you said, there are so many issues, so many things to be looking out for, and for people who may not be safeguarding leads, it can be really overwhelming trying to take all this knowledge in. So yeah, no, I think that's a really good point to be making. And I, I think the other thing is, that, of course, it, it's part of the job. A bit yeah. like the, the way you, know, you could argue about this uh, as well. The fact that for me, safeguarding is part of my bigger job, even more so for other stuff. Safeguarding is part of their bigger job. So if they're thinking about teaching their chemistry lesson, they can't be thinking of all the different elements of safeguarding at the same time. Yeah. The nice, simple, clear instruction. Yeah, we're um, moving towards um, like the shared responsibility of safeguarding now, aren't we? Like, I feel like people don't just say, oh, well, that's not my job, that's our safeguarding leads. Like you said, they now understand that they do have a responsibility to look out for possible concerns regarding the students. And I think that that fits in perfectly, as if we practiced this. Um, with my, <laughs> the, the, the next point about how you achieve that safeguarding culture is exactly that. But also making it clear to staff that we really appreciate them taking that element of their job seriously. I think it's really important that it is part of their appraisal. 
that it is part of what we're talking about when we're training our new staff. And I think even just small things, I can uh, I try and email a member of staff uh, or, or catch them in the corridor if they've handled a particular issue well. Now, it's not just about did they get good grades that year, but was there a child in their class who had a really big issue and they really helped them get through it? Um, and I think just rewarding, you know, rewarding stuff just by recognition um, mm-hmm. is something they really appreciate. And closely linked to that um, is that idea of the team. So there's the broadest sense, all the staff being involved. But I think in particular in leadership, one of the biggest oddities for me of keeping children safe in education is that it always refers to the safeguarding leader as a single person. And it yes, never talks like about the team. Yeah. And, and I think that is the oddity. And I've, I've said about it in various of the consultations and talking to saying, why do you not acknowledge the fact that generally it's a safeguarding team? You, know, you have to have the safeguarding lead. That's fair enough. But I've been involved in a number of inspections where the, the lead inspector is saying, so where's the deputy DSL? Well, well, we've got about 10 of them. The, yeah. All these different people are supporting. Well, well, there needs to be one deputy, doesn't there? And you think, well, it doesn't really work like that in safeguarding. And if, as with many schools, you've got 1,000, 2,000 students, the idea that the one DSL is doing all of the things that it says in keeping children safe in education is a really odd one. And I think yeah. that's something that would be really good for for them to look at at some point, because I think the the effective DSL is one who is part of a much broader team. So I've now got, I think, something like 12 members of staff who are level three trained. You don't want to be the one person who is able to talk to the ladder or to make a referral or to yeah. pick up the phone at the right time. So I think those are the thing, ways in which you can start to create that culture. And I think it's moving away. You'll notice I haven't talked really about training. Training is vital, but it's just that starting point. And I think yeah. it's these other things that are really important for that full culture of safeguarding. It's like you said with training. I think some people see it as like a tick box exercise. We've got to train our staff. Whether what you're talking about is the culture, which is your day to day what are all the staff doing to actually create this culture and to keep children safe? So, Luke, we've been talking about the safeguarding culture, the safeguarding team. So how do you educate staff to act as safeguarding leads would all the time? Well, I, th- I think this is a key thing. and One of the things I think is important for safeguarding leads is to think about safeguarding leadership in terms of broader leadership as well. It's not just the siloed sort of separate safeguarding community. And in particular, a book that's been really influential to me over the last year or so since I read it is a book by an an army officer, rather uh, oddly, um, a a chap called Langley Sharp, who wrote The Habit of Excellence about leadership in the British Army. And he made a really brilliant point about that he applied to the military, but I think applies really great, uh, really well to safeguarding, I said the key point on the battlefield is not that the generals and the the top commanders know what to do, but for an army to be successful, all the junior officers and soldiers on the battlefield need to know not just what their orders are, but to be able to understand the spirit of those orders and how they respond to a crisis or a a sudden you know a change in what's happening in a particular conflict or situation, um, so that they're going to respond in the right way with even without an order and really to respond as if the commander was there at the time. And I thought to my, when I was listening to this is on another podcast where he was talking about this, um, I thought that applies so brilliantly to safeguarding because fundamentally what I want to happen is that. If any member of staff, a disclosure is made to them or they see some unpleasant incident, 
that they should respond in the same way that I would have responded. And I think that is such a brilliant way of looking at it in terms of the way we want our staff to be. Because, of course, we want them to be able to pass up the chain of command, if you like, to continue that military analogy and to be able to think, well, I don't have to deal with myself. I'm not the DSL. And so I'm going to pass on this information. But for them to know how to do the right thing in that instance and to know what they're looking at, to know what the problem is, is really important. And how do we get them to do that? What is that education like? Well, we've talked a bit about that, that, that culture of safeguarding. But I'm going to nick another bit from Langley Sharp as well, which is um, a quote from his book. Where that we are what we repeatedly do. Mm-hmm. Excellence is not an act, but a habit. And I think I like the key that. thing there, that, that's a great quote for safeguarding. Yeah. Um, and it's not just sort of, again, it goes back to that proactive nature. It's being mindful of, of, that we're doing the right thing for safeguarding. I mean, it's all very well having the idea in the back of my head, like I had my training and just wandering around school you know, with your head buried in a book or metaphorically or just thinking about getting your next cup of coffee. But actually going through school with your head up, looking at what the students are doing, being in your class, not just thinking, you know, obviously, the academic takes a real focus. But know what other things are going with your students. So if you're um, in the catering team, you know, not just serving out the food, but thinking, no, actually, how are the students queuing up? Are they is there somebody looking unhappy? And I say it's not just. And so it's that mindfully thinking about creating that right culture, because once you start getting into that mindset, that idea of excellence as a habit is to me such an important thing. And, you know, I'm not saying that my school is, has a particular uh, monopoly on this, but for example, I'm thinking about the catering staff. What I love about going into the kitchens and seeing what they're doing in the servery is that they, they're talking to the students, they're having a nice chat with them, they're being engaged with them. It's that sort of thing, or out on the playground, the staff member is on duty, going over and having a chat with the girls playing not netball and the boys playing football. And it's that sort of making sure that they are constantly being active and thinking about how are we going to engage with the students yeah um, and so partly that's that sense of you know if you've got a school where that is um, appreciated where yeah. the senior team are not just thinking right well your grades are like this which is clearly important but actually noting that a member of staff is that engaged and that interested the other key thing as well is actually giving the staff confidence in training not just in safeguarding but related things so understanding about mental health so most of our staff now have done mental health first aid training um training in rse so actually they're confident in having a discussion that might be quite an awkward one both for the student and for the member of staff about something to do with um sexual health or sexual relationships things like that neurodiversity something which Mm. um, is increasingly uh, important topic in in education understanding what is meant by an ASD diagnosis, by an ADHD diagnosis, because then, of course, the staff can be engaged and can be confident if they've got that that right training. Um, And and then the other final thing on that is also a real transparency about safeguarding processes. So members of staff shouldn't feel they need to uh, follow through safeguarding issues to their, their final conclusion. There's a lot of the time when that can be passed on to the safeguarding team, passed on to me. But what we tend to do is try and keep the st- that member of staff who first raised it in the loop of what's been going on with that. We don't just pull it away into a secret room and say, uh, top secret safeguarding happening here. Um, you don't yeah. know what happens next. 
And so obviously we can't always say all the things that have happened, but within the bounds of you know, privacy um, and all those sorts of things, we tend to try and say to ourselves, well, thank you so much for bringing that to us. And here's kind of broadly what happened. This is how we were able to help with this. And I think staff really appreciate being at least part of that sense of, well, I know what happened next. Yeah. And there's nothing more off-putting in safeguarding than feeling, well, I said a thing and something mysterious happened in the mysterious yeah. safeguarding room. Yeah, because I guess from the staff's point of view, they'd be concerned, like, has is there an, actually an action that's happened? Has it been resolved? Is it still ongoing? Do I need to still be worried about this? Yeah. And, yeah, like you said, by including them in the conversation, they at least know, okay, this is settled. Now I can keep my eye open for other things. Um, I wanted to go back before when we first started talking. You also mentioned this um, culture of trying to be proactive when it comes to safeguarding, and that kind of relates back to the training you give staff and also um, what you said about making sure staff are just aware of their surroundings and what ha- what's happening around them. That kind of goes back mm-hmm. to be proactive instead of just waiting for um, some big safeguarding issue. Um, I think that phrase of professional curiosity, I I can tell that I'm going to be using that a lot in my training at the start of term with the staff. I think that's a really nice one. I said it it is a slightly odd one. It's not very sort of precise or defined. But I think (laughs) saying to staff, you need to have professional curiosity and look into things. So, for example, you're, you're walking down the corridor and you see a slight scuffle by the lockers. You always have that decision. Do I just walk on? I've got some photocopying to do before my next lesson. Or do I at very least sort of ask, look, boys or girls, then what's going on here? Is there a big problem? Is there anything? Is there an issue? Um, and to have shown an interest, be curious about yeah. what's been going on in that situation. That sort of thing. What, which sort of teacher, member of staff are you? Are you the person who's focused on your main goal? Or are you going to take that bit of time just to check on how the students are being? Definitely. So we've talked a lot about staff. I want to talk now about students and how do we encourage students to communicate with staff about concerns, especially when it's around issues like peer-on-peer abuse, around consent, around um, nude images being shared without consent, things like that that are quite personal and can be quite uncomfortable to talk about given the culture of victim blaming and the shaming that kind of comes with that territory. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's really good, actually, that um, KCSIE and also the Ofsted report after everyone's invited have really hammered home that point about how little schools find out about. And and, yes. that, and, and I always put it to myself, it's, we, we see the tip of an iceberg. Know that the ten percent, the fifteen percent that gets told to us, there's that vast amount that you know. If you remember back to being a school child, how much did you talk to the teachers about issues or problems that you had? And I think it's really good that the um, the KCSA is putting that onus onto schools, is saying that you do need to be aware of this. And um, if, for members of staff who are sort of looking at their KCSIE paragraph nineteen. Uh, to name check it, it's a, all staff must should be aware that children may not feel ready or know how to tell someone. It is important that staff determine how best to build trusted relationships with children. And that, I think, is another phrase that I'll be using a lot at the start of this year. It is important that staff determine how to build trusted relationships with children. And yeah. I think just the very point of saying to staff, this is important, this is a really key thing for us, is going to help and that staff are going to then take that time. 
And also, there's a new imperative to schools, which I, again, I, I entirely welcome. I think it's a very good thing that the new inspection frameworks for ISI and Ofsted both focus so heavily on student voice. Yes. St- school governors, school senior teams are going to be constantly saying to themselves and to their staff, how are we knowing what's really going with students? And so the first thing from a top down level, there is a big pressure on schools to get that student voice. And I think it's so important they do that. And again, it moves us away from that tick box where we did that training. So how do we how do we get that happening? I think the first thing I'd say is and I think is not to be underestimated is, again, being really transparent about safeguarding. And this, in fact, comes from my conversation with the students where they said to me a few years ago, the thing that most sort of made them feel uneasy about safeguarding, coming to a member of staff with an issue was what happens next. And because and particularly as a DSL, I think, because I'm so familiar with what happens next, I sort of hadn't given it a a thought that other people didn't know that. And so we now have lessons in school where we actually just explain the process. If a student comes to a member of staff with a problem about bullying, this is what will happen. If a student comes to a member of staff with an issue about sexting, this is what happens. And I think even just that knowledge, I mean, knowledge gives you power. Yeah. The knowledge of, OK, if there's a thing about sexting, I know that this is the law. I know that this is what the police will do, that they won't try and criminalise the people involved. All of those things might seem quite obvious to to lots of staff because, of course, we do that regular training. If you don't pass that on to the students, they are they're not aware. It's a fear of the unknown, isn't it? Much more concerned. Am I going to be arrested because I shared a picture or am I uh, is the person who passed on? Are they going to be arrested? Because very, very often students with this peer on peer issues are going to be really concerned that actually that's proportionate response to it and that's one of the biggest things in their minds or if it's a, a, an issue with their family you know, am I going to be taken away from my parents are my parents going to be put in prison and again saying this these are responses and, and being able to say rightly that the power will continue to lie with them they will be the one who can talk to the police if that's relevant or talk to social services and they will be the, 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 you know, the that team around the child and so I found that as students you know, really educating the students in that has been very helpful, just having that knowledge of what happens next. The other key thing is, going back to the idea of staff education, making them better, giving them that confidence at talking about really awkward issues. Uh, One of the most striking stories I heard about this in terms of having awkward conversations is somebody who does RSE training with um, governors. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently with one, she said, I, I can't believe this is actually true, but she claims that she did this. She <laughs> walked into the governor's meeting. Right. I want to get into pairs. We got into pairs. She said, right. I want to talk to each other about your sex life. And all, all the governors just said, oh. and she said, <laughs> OK, we're not going to do that. But imagine you're a 16 year old and you're wondering whether or not to talk to your tutor about your sex life. She said, oh, that's, that's how hard it is. <laughs> For you to get teenagers to talk to your te- to teachers, I, that's such a powerful image of oh, how definitely. much do you want to talk about? Yeah, <laughs> with someone you don't know particularly well, and that I think just showing us the scale of the challenge, and no wonder, you know, a lot of people aren't very comfortable talking about. It. So the more we can be doing that, and in particular making the RSE RSE is such a big part of safeguarding. I think it's really good that a lot of that sex education understanding of that is coming into KCSIE 
Because actually, the more teachers do those lessons and do effective discursive lessons where they want the student voice. If you've had a, a conversation with your tutor about you know, about RSE, any different element of it, you know, for example, with consent, you might then feel a bit more comfortable talking to that same teacher about that issue. Yeah. Or even if, for example, you've had an external company coming in, um, just give a quick shout out to the school's consent project there yeah. as a company that can come into schools and talk about uh, consent. That if you're there with your t- with your tutor and you've both had that lesson, you might feel more comfortable in a couple of months say, actually, sir or miss, there was there's an issue that actually is to do with that thing. You remember that lesson we both were, were at on consent. There's something I want to ask you about. So I think RSE has a big role to play in that. Mm. Um, and actually, another thing that's come up in the last couple of years is increasing these IT potential issues to help student communication. So we use an app called Scodal Check-In where the students can uh, go onto their phone and um, there's a series of emojis that they can send to their tutor. And it goes just to their tutor and express whether they're you know, happy, unhappy, why they might be unhappy. Um, and so uh, and that that's, has proven over the last couple of years really helpful for students who might have an issue they don't really want to talk about face to face straight away, but they're just going to raise there's this issue. Um, I've seen there's another app called Imabi, which um, is started off working with the um, Transport for London, I think mm. it is, um, having a, an app for, for um, uh, possible crimes on that. But they, I think they've started an app now that might work with schools. Um, okay. And so that's something that um, DSLs might want to look at, which I think does a very similar thing. Basically, if you have an issue, you can send it. I think you can send it anonymously to teachers saying there's an issue. So that so I think IT is also starting to be part of the the way in which you can get students to communicate. And given how many teen, teenagers communicate almost solely as a dad of uh, three children um, <laughs> using social media, um, that might be something that really helps to open up uh, communication. And then, then finally, not to be underestimated as well, even though teenagers don't often like to talk to their parents, um, building relationships with families making sure that because we've talked a lot about the children and making sure yeah. that they're comfortable, making sure that our wider family groups in schools are comfortable with what we're doing, because it can be very worrying for, for parents. If you know, a teacher, a student goes to their teacher and says, oh, don't talk to my parents or mm-hmm. goes to parents and says vice versa. So actually, the more we build up those relationships with parents that can help to you know, just create those communication bridges between families with students. So, there's, there's obviously it's a very difficult. It's the million dollar question. How do you get a student to say there's been a particular issue? Those are a few things which I've found quite useful. But I know that there are lots more different potential solutions and ideas out there. And uh, also depends upon your school as well. But certainly yeah. something to be working at. I guess at the end of the day, if you've created that really open culture where it's OK to come forward about any kinds of issues, hopefully it will make students and staff alike feel more comfortable disclosing things like yeah. that. So my next question is, how do schools ensure they are inclusive in safeguarding and what does that actually mean? <laughs> so inclusion is something that's a really important part of, of schools in general, increasingly. Um, and that sense of embracing the whole of the community and creating that genuine equality in everything we do. So it's an important part of the academic life of the school um, and just as much important part of the safeguarding element of the school. And it was really notable that the new KCSIE, as I'm sure all the other safeguarding leads have noted, now has extensive quotes from the Human Rights Act, 
the Equalities mm. Act, the Public Sector Equality Duty. So there is now, and I think in a very positive way, again, a real imperative to make sure that students of uh, of all different sorts are included in every, in all our safeguarding. Yeah. And I think the key thing with that, that sense of inclusion, it, it's again, I go come back to the idea of simplicity. It's essentially making sure we do that, that we do make sure that we are trying to reduce barriers um, to communication, to how we treat them, that we're aware of potential barriers uh, that there might be out there um, and and do our best to overcome them. So in thinking of the Equalities Act, when you have the different um, areas of sex, race, disability, religion, belief, sexual orientation, gender reassignment, pregnancy or maternity, if all those different areas, we have them in mind and are saying that we're going to make sure that we are not being um, discriminatory in those areas, then but it's making sure that teachers are aware of potential areas of discrimination. And I think one of the interesting things there is that, you know, it's, it's a big um, bit of work for schools to do. KCSA now has a specific section where it looks at um, gender issues. Mm-hmm. So um, this is paragraphs 202 to 204 for those uh, looking at their uh, KCSIE. Um, it is vital that staff endeavour to, to reduce the additional barriers faced and provide a safe space for students to speak out or share their concerns with a member of staff. And that's um, any issues to do with bullying around sexuality and gender. And I think that's really good to have an onus on schools to have somebody who's going to be a focal point for students if they've got an issue. Um, mm. They're really giving a sense to schools. I, I don't really understand how you can um, uh, provide that um, support without having some sort of student group around yeah. LGBTQ, which a lot of schools already do. So I think that's something we're giving a real push to schools in that level. Um, there's also a big section on mental health, you know, neurodiversity. That's mm. something which staff need to be aware of. Um, SEND. Um, special education needs and disabilities I mentioned. I think the really surprising thing to me actually is that there isn't a separate section about, about race. And that's something yeah. that really struck me, given that there are all these separate sections. And when they clearly a, you'd hope that all schools are already doing a lot of work teaching about racism and, their poten- and potential issues with that. I think it's something which they should be looking at for next future iteration so something which has been written about a lot in the last few months is for instance adultification yes. and that sense of and that sort of unconscious bias the way in which um you know, uh, students uh, from uh, particularly uh, black and asian communities um might be seen as uh, more sort of streetwise is the, the the phrase often used and actually uh, being treated by teachers in a different way because of their race and that's yeah. not a teach and, and i think making sure that teachers are aware of these potential biases, which so we're, we're doing that in terms of gender, we're doing that in terms of neurodiversity. I think it's surprising that it wouldn't be brought up more obviously by KCSIE. I'm presuming and I'm sure that most schools are already doing a lot of work on that, but it's something that I'd hope that all schools are doing. And and I think, again, it's that being transparent and talking about it making sure that assemblies are talking about those things with the students, making sure that there's staff training about potential issues of unconscious bias, things that start, uh, the words that staff use, for instance. Yeah. Um, and making sure they're not being disparaging without meaning to, those sorts of things. Um, uh, and so 
being that that mindful sort of presence. So I think inclusivity. I mean, yes, there are all sorts of things you can do in terms of having inclusivity training, but I think it comes back to that simplicity of being mindful, making sure that teachers are aware of these things, and that transparency. That other word I've used a lot about saying to students, "We are looking to work on this." And actually, the other thing that I've, I've said a lot to myself. You might get it wrong. It might be that you say you know, a phrase you think, oh, what a stupid thing to say. And actually, if you just say, you know, I think I said the wrong thing there. I think that's a really important thing to be able to do as well, because Definitely. particularly, dare I say, different generations of teachers and staff that you might have in school. There might be you know, people who are not necessarily so up with the, the, the right language that you should be using. I mean, first of all, you know, helping staff get it right with training is an important thing. But also, crucially, saying to your own staff, you might say the wrong thing, actually, by accident. But if you can then say, no, I think that probably wasn't the right thing to do, then that, that's a really positive learning experience for staff and students as well. No, definitely. I'm just speaking about the unconscious bias and adultification. Um, I've been reading the Child Q, the case practice review, and mm. that was quite eye-opening for me. So I, I agree with what you say about making sure there isn't that unconscious bias towards black and Asian, especially students. Um, and also, like you said, giving students that voice to speak out if they feel like, like you said, with generational things, with the language changing, I think it's important for students to be able to speak out if something's happening that the person might not realise is coming across quite badly. But yeah, oh, Yes, uh, I think that that's a really good point, actually. And I think that... Yeah, it's not, not a no-blame culture. I mean, you've got to sort of say, no, you need to say the right things. But I think that that ability to say without being, being sort of shouted down as a student, I think you're absolutely right. That Being able to say, you know what, I think I'm not really happy with the way in which X is saying that yeah. thing. And to be able to, you know, then a member of staff might be able to say, no, I think actually that's, that's something you're getting wrong. And it goes right back to that. I've deliberately not um, talked too much about it because you already have a podcast on this, these low-level <laughs> concerns. Yeah. I think it's... Uh, that's a really good example of the way in which actually you might want to raise a concern of you know, X is really not using the right phrase there. That's really not the right thing. To do. We need to sort that out. It's not a massive safeguarding concern, but let's make sure we deal with it. Definitely. And I think we see examples of this in ways where people don't mean any harm by it. They don't mean to offend. And like you said, it's just um, lack of knowledge. Um, mm. One that comes to mind is teachers not referring to children by the correct pronouns if yes. they have had reassignment and they want to be the opposite to what they were or they want to be they or them and teachers mm-hmm. just getting that wrong. But like you said, it's really important for children and students to feel like teachers are listening and that they respect them and that they yes. understand the things that they're going through, definitely. I think that the, the other one that I thought was very powerful was that, I don't know, mispronouncing names. Yes. I think particularly living in uh, West London with our extremely diverse community and uh, it's that thing of, again, sort of that transparency openness. You now a teacher might want to say, actually, how do you pronounce that name? I think that's yeah. exactly, but just to sort of ignore it and just get it wrong constantly. It's that sort of what might seem that little thing, but actually if, if numbers of members of staff repeatedly just can't be bothered to get your name right, that's the kind of thing that really quite rightly is something we're feeling, actually, that's not right at all. Yeah, exactly. And like, if they don't care about getting it right, it kind of shows that student that, oh, well, I guess I don't matter to these yeah. teachers. And it kind of goes back to what we've been talking about with professional curiosity. There's no shame in saying, I'm yeah. sorry, I don't actually know how to pronounce your name. Can you tell me now 
rather than, like you said, just getting it wrong and yeah. it becoming a point of tension between the student and the teacher. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Exactly. So we talked a little bit before about how safeguarding is shared. It's not just the role of one DSL, but like you said, it's a whole team of people normally carrying out the safeguarding. How do you share safeguarding between a team of people? Yeah, and, and I think, as I said, just to, to Richard, I, th- I think it is such an anachronistic element of KCSIE that it doesn't talk about the team. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a school inspector and I'm a, a, trust, uh, a governor of another school, and I don't know a single other school where there isn't a group of people who are in charge of safeguarding. Um, and so I think it comes really down to the centrality of, and this is... Uh, um, being a podcast of the safeguarding company, I must say that you could use any uh, system that you wish, but I think actually having a really good IT safeguarding system at the heart of what you do is really important. Right, that might seem a bit impersonal, but actually the crucial thing for me at St. Benedict's is that everything that goes onto the system, you know, safeguarding issues, safeguarding events, disclosures, it can be seen by all the right people. Mm. And what that means is that, because I often had discussions with school inspectors about this, so you're the leader DSL, what happens if you're off-site? Well, it doesn't matter, because um, the, the other DSLs have the same level of access, entirely rightly. And so if I wasn't there, they can look at the whole history of a particular student or history of a particular incident, and they have all the information that I have. Perfect. And I think that has been really transformational in terms of how you can have this team approach. Because I think what a lot of say, older generation, a safeguarding needs might think is, well, how on earth does everybody know what's going on? Well, it's really easy, actually. If you make sure that you add all of these issues, if you have it as a central point for all information and you do entirely go away from that sense of the filing cabinet in the corner of your room where you put your little scraps of paper, yeah. it actually means that I have total confidence that when I'm, I have a day off site, that, uh, that the head of year, who's also level three trained or um, uh, one of the other safeguarding team, they could even without needing to even phone me, they could just say, oh, this new thing's come up. Let's look at that. Oh, I see that there's been that issue. I need to do this about it. And actually, so that has allowed it to be a really straightforward action to use sort of business term system in that there's not great. They don't have to be huge numbers of meetings where we're passing on information. So I remember when I first started at the school about six years ago, there used to be great long meetings of handing over from year group to year group. Oh, yeah. Last hours and hours, and you'd pass over the paper files, and you'd check all these things, and there'd be a whole morning's work. Whereas now, we just press a button, and the ownership on that year group goes to the next person. And of course, you have a brief meeting saying, look out for them. There's an issue here and an issue here, 20 minutes. But other than that, they say, just read, read the notes. It's all on there. And so I think that's been something that's really been transformational and allows a team to really operate in a way which isn't inefficient, doesn't take up huge amounts of time. And I am able to have real confidence that you know, anybody can step up uh, and do that. And, and I think that's why a lot of schools are already doing this, but I definitely recommend it. Level three training for a number of people. I think, again, in terms of making life complicated, schools that get worried about now, who's the lead DSL, who's the deputy DSL, what's the chain of command? As long as you're a level three DSL and they've got the information at hand, they can deal with the safeguarding issue. That, to me, is it's as simple as that. And so that, that that's really how it should work. And having said you know, we don't need to have meetings that much, the crucial thing as well, you know, do have the, that weekly meeting, that sense of, 
you know, and that coming back to the more human element, that sense of the team. Yeah. yeah that, that fact that you will have that sense of a shared goal, a common objective, um, a way of doing things. So if you like, there, there's, I've got a little handbook of how we use my concern so that I know that people are going to be a, 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 entering data in the right way. We have a yeah. little handbook about how you, how you approach the different, um, uh, external agencies here in West London and, and that, you know, the, the best way to, to, to get the, the right things happening for our students. So there does absolutely need to be that sense of that team building, that sense of a group together. It's quite nice in our school. There's actually a pair of offices next to each other for all of the heads of year. So we have a sort of little oh, pastoral good. hub, which yeah. makes that much easier. But I, I go back to that sense of using the technology correctly yeah. and make it a really straightforward uh, way of doing it. And I think on a practical level, that sense of having a lot of DSLs really helps in terms of transition planning. Most people don't go into being a DSL to, to stay there forever. You know, yeah. Usually it's a part of a package of their various um, different responsibilities. And so they probably won't be DSL for, you know, for years and years and years. Uh, so making sure that you've got somebody you can step up pretty straightforwardly is, again, a real help. I'm sure as well, when you've got a team, actually sharing the workload between the whole team takes a lot of pressure off of the lead DSL because that is one thing whenever we see the new Keeping Children Safe in Education guidance, it keeps getting longer and the amount of work that goes into the DSL is just, this is more, there's more every year. So yes. it, it seems insane that a school would try to have one person do this entire role when, like you said, it's more suited for a big team working together, collaborating to make sure they're doing the best job. Because at the end of the day, it's not a light matter. Like looking after children and keeping children safe is very important. So yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's interesting that Kixie sort of still talks about a, a little DSL rather than the team of safeguarders. Absolutely. And I think that comes on to something again, which dropped out of KCSIE actually, but the idea of safeguarding supervision. Mm. Uh, and I think that's something, because I think you're absolutely right, that sense of how do we you know, manage our, you know, the team and ourselves as safeguarding leads. I mean, there are, there are an awful lot of different things that come across your desk, uh, and some can be pretty uh, you know, difficult subjects to be dealing with. And so one of the, uh, the best courses I went on uh, over the last few years was about doing safe, being a safeguarding supervisor. And so that means that we have um, our meetings each week now, our safeguarding supervision meetings, and so they sort of clear spaces where we can discuss issues, help them uh, develop as safeguarding uh, leads. And I myself have uh, meetings with uh, our school counsellor, where in a sense she's she acts almost as my supervisor in a, in a sense. So everybody's got somebody to talk to. That's in important. Our teams, so we're all talking yeah. to. It. So I think as well as that, you no know, passing on information. I think it's a really good point you make. We're also supporting each other. And I think exactly. given that what an intense role it is, that idea of supporting each other is also really important. Definitely. And I think for a lot of DSLs and people involved in safeguarding, it's quite lonely. And like you said, there are some things that you can't share with other people because of um, GDPR and mm. permissions. So, yeah, I think it's important to be able to find support from people who understand how difficult the job can be. Yes, no, definitely. definitely. Yeah. Uh, this leads really well onto the next point. We've been talking a little bit about information sharing between a team of safeguarders. What about best practice in sharing information to other agencies? 
Well, it's really striking that there was a report, and I'd recommend it to DSLs to have a look at, a report from the Children's Commissioner uh, published on the 27th of July. If you go onto the, her website, um, you can see the report. And it um, says, over the last few months, my office has been working hard on developing new ways to improve data sharing and child safeguarding systems. Um, and what it effectively says is how difficult this is. Um, and one crucial phrase, which is across different safeguarding partners within one locality, there are often different cultural appetites to risk and appreciation of what safeguarding means. We heard that despite attempts to make data sharing the default for practitioners, many were still apprehensive about sharing information, fear of oversharing details and being prosecuted or fined, or due to a lack of motivation to do so from senior leaders. So mm. I definitely look at that. Uh, yeah. And I think it really sums up well the issues. And and to me, one of the biggest issues, which seems to me such a straightforward one to deal with, is that worries about GDPR, data protection. Am I going to be sued or imprisoned for sharing information? And it's such a simple one because the answer is always no, because if it's about safeguarding, it is more important and legally um, trumps, if you like, uh, the, the GDPR guidance. And I can see why people get worried about it, but I think if that message is just constantly hammered home and really emphasised by the senior leadership of the school, then then I think we will go to, will come to to make get better at that. But I think it's still to me, and looking at when you look at the um, the serious case reviews, you know, it's always striking, isn't it? Time and again, it's the failure to share information. And I would imagine a lot of people listening to this will nod their heads when I say, I still think that's the biggest problem. And this mm. is what this report has identified. Um, outside school, you know, getting information sometimes out of social services or out of other agencies can be incredibly time consuming and difficult. Yeah. And also within schools, there are a lot of schools where I've, I've done some inspection. We still have teachers saying, oh, well, I can't talk about that. It's, it's data protection, isn't it? And absolutely not. So I think on that very basic level, best practices do share information. So I think that one simple, again, you, you, I, I seem to always focus on simplicity. The one simple thing I'd say is do you share information. I think if DSLs do nothing else, just getting that message across is absolutely vital. Moving on from that to, to the thing which kind of really infuses me in safeguarding is, well, actually, once you start sharing information, you can actually start doing really, really good safeguarding. Yeah. And that's the thing where, you know, I've done a, do a number of talks at conferences and talk to lots of schools about it in the sense of as a safeguarding leader, rather oddly, I'm, I get quite enthused about data and spreadsheets and things like that, because actually what you can start to do if you do share data and you collect data on safeguarding is to actually start being proactive. Mm. And rather than being a safeguarding leader who is waiting for the next no problem to come up with. You can start thinking about you know, over the summer now. You can look back over your year and get all the data you've collected about what's happening and think, oh, well, what are the patterns in our school? What are the kind of things that have been going, uh, issues that have been happening in our school? Where are the, you know, where, which year group is having the most issue with bullying? Which part of the term are there more, most issues of anxiety? And yeah. actually thinking, you know what, next year, I'm going to put in place a plan which can ensure that we help to mitigate that. I think that's definitely important, looking forward and trying to, like you said, spot the things that are going to happen before they actually do. Um, can you give us a couple of examples of when this has happened at St Benedict's and you've been able to put in place things to help students? 
Yeah, well, the two two that come to mind. First of all, the, the, the one that I, I often use is the first sort of time that the light bulb moment for me was I was looking back after we'd used my concern for a couple of years. And so actually had a few years of, of data about bullying. And I saw a real, it sounds a bit like one of those um, COVID uh, reporting, a real <laughs> spike in the curve of bullying um, in November for the last two years. I know that, that was really increased there. And so I, I could, looking back and I thought, oh, I can see why that might be happening. You know, they're all stuck indoors more often. They're all a bit fed up and tired. A number of different reasons. Thought, let's not just allow this to happen. Let's do something about it. Mm-hmm. So we made sure that we had a number of assemblies on it. We made sure that in certain areas we had a few more staff on duty around site. And actually we, we did, again, to go back to that COVID analogy, we suppressed the curve. You know, we didn't <laughs> have that spike anymore. And you could see the way you, know, you can proactively resolve issues before they even arise. I think the other one, when you're looking at, I think, a really interesting way of looking at it as an inspector, school inspector, is having, if you like, a heat map of school. And I think this is a really good idea for inspectors to have a a map of the school and get students to shade in their green, amber, red. Where are you happy? Where might you be nervous? Is there any area that's red? And so it's something we've been using for years now. That's kind of idea in terms of our school planning developments. So, for instance, when I first arrived here, we had a number of really large, old-fashioned loo blocks, and with you know, big, big spaces in them at which those teachers couldn't go into. Obviously, we can't have any CCTV. Obviously, yeah. um, and so they were absolute hub of poor behaviour. Mm-hmm. So what we've got around the entire school now, and it was made a priority in our school planning, was every single loo is now a separate cubicle with its own wash basin. Amazing. So actually, there are no big sort of loo areas which are uh, and so miraculously all the problems that we had with that have have vanished and so you can use it in terms of your planning of how you actually where you put staff on duty how you actually develop the physical space of your school so there are huge amounts that you can do with this and actually it becomes a virtuous circle the more you use your your data systems and more you collect data the more you can get a really good sense of what's happening and plan out you know, practical uh, things. And it's interesting, again, a, a document I really just wanted to mention, but I think links in well with this, is it was published in May, but working together to improve school attendance. Um, it's actually coming into force in September, but I thought a, no, a few people might have missed this because it was published um, during the year. Um, but it's really interesting how much this focuses on the use of data. It actually says that schools... Um, the key to good attendance is regular data analysis to identify and provide immediate support to pupils or pupil cohorts and to look at historic and emerging patterns across the school and develop strategies to address them. So actually, it's really good to see um, government guidance saying to schools, actually, do do this. Yeah. We know you have all this data. Of course, there's attendance data. But I would say go further, do that across the spectrum of safeguarding. Looking oh, at bullying, looking at behaviour, looking at these things, look at these uh, calls historic and emerging patterns, and there might be something you can do about it. There might be something really straightforward you can do. So I think that, and again, that is something which schools now everything is based on you know, digital platforms. Um, there is a huge amount of data that you can be drawing on. So I'd say that just as much as schools will have for decades now been using spreadsheets to get data about academic achievement. I know safeguarding is it's about that human contact with people and looking after people individually, but actually we can really get ahead 
um, by having a bit more of that using that data and being a bit more spreadsheet um, focused occasionally uh, yeah. and thinking, well, what are the bigger pictures that are coming out in our school so that we can, as you say, try and preempt possible issues? Of course. And I'm sure like every school will probably have similar issues. Like I imagine in secondary schools around exam time, that's when anxiety for students must just be through the roof. And like you said, that is something that's going to happen at the same point every single year. So why wait for this massive anxiety and why not act now, get more people in place to help with the mental health and well-being of students to try to prevent this from happening year after year? I think that leads me to just a point that it's really struck me this last year as well. Again, another sort of IT based one is that, stu- that um, DSLs should look to you know, be more communicative with, other, with DSLs from other schools. There are all yes. sorts of platforms. I'm Dareset. Uh, Safeguarding Company has one as well. I was um, going to mention it. I'm glad you did. <laughs> but but it, it really does help. And, and, and I always say when I talk to the DSLs, it's not like exam results. Schools are all in competition with their exam results, but we're all on the same side with safeguarding. So actually the ability to reach out and say anonymously, I've just had this big problem. What would you do? Or you know, what, you know, does anybody know what they should do in this particular case? It's such a vital one. And it's striking that the number of people who haven't thought of ever doing that. Mm. And so, again, that's something as always one of the final points of this podcast. We do look to engage with other, other DSLs, be part of that safeguarding community, because we're all here to support each other. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, anything from this podcast now i'm not not sure about inclusion i'm not that confident on now brand new dsl i'm not that confident on neurodiversity who would i ask for training who would i should i get into my school there's there's thousands of other people out there who might have a really good idea and could help you to do that so i think that's a, a, a big sort of um exhaustion from me do you sort of go out there and share ideas or if you have a good idea share them with people you know, exactly don't just keep I, it to yourself yeah i think like we said before, with um, safeguarding, it can be lonely. It can be just difficult. So, yeah, like Luke has mentioned, the safeguarding community is there for people just to join. It's completely free to share your knowledge. Like, let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's talk to each other. Let's yeah. learn from each other to help everyone's safeguarding practice get better. Um, thank you so much, Luke. What I'm going to do for all our listeners is I'll link to some of these articles that Luke has mentioned. We'll definitely put a link in to Keeping Children Safe in Education. And then the data sharing child safeguarding systems that you mentioned from the Children's Commissioner and the Working Together to Improve School Attendance. Those will both be in the show notes uh, as well with a link for the safeguarding community if anyone wants to join. It's just a good place to share ideas and connect. Yeah. And, yeah, Luke, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, how can they do so? <laughs> I, I use LinkedIn quite a lot. I find it a slightly gentler place than Twitter. So if you just look up Luke Ramsden, um, I'll come up on that. Um, and so, yes, I, I put I, I do quite a few safeguarding links and uh, uh, things on there. So so by all means, no, do, do connect on there if you want to. No, amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Safeguarding Podcast. For resources and more information about our safeguarding solutions, please visit thesafeguardingcompany.com.